2: Hello, and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. 2020 has been a tough year, and it's been especially challenging for those in the hospitality industry. Our guest today is Steve Palmer, managing partner of the Indigo Road Hospitality Group, a South Carolina-based group of 24 restaurants. As has been the case for so many, COVID has turned his business upside down.
0: February we were tracking ahead of last year, and everything seemed to be fine. And literally within about 14 days, we were completely shut down.
2: Steve had a wide-ranging conversation with my colleague, Sasha Kadri. They talked about navigating the pandemic, working 18-hour days in restaurant kitchens, and about an ultimatum that would change his life.
0: I was managing a restaurant, and I came to work one day. And he basically said, you can clean out your office or you can go to rehab, but we're not gonna watch you kill yourself anymore. And every fiber in my being wanted to tell him what he could do, you know, and but for whatever reason that day I chose to get help.
2: Steve talked about the dark side of the industry.
0: It was scary, it was lonely. To be honest, um, you know, I got out of rehab and I went right back to managing this restaurant. And that sort of group of people, it wasn't that they were being unkind, they just didn't know what to say.
2: And his contribution to changing it. Here's Sasha with Steve.
1: Steve, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. I'd love to start by asking you, what got you interested in cooking? Were you uh, from a foodie family? Were you a foodie kid?
0: I got my first job washing dishes, and it was a Chinese restaurant, and I was the only American working there. And every night, they would slide a plate of food to me, and I didn't. they wouldn't tell me what it was, they wouldn't, you know but it was my first sort of like light bulb moment about food because it was so exotic it were things i had never tasted and that really was i call my first food memory where i i was just this whole other world had been opened up and so even as a young teenager i immediately started cooking in restaurants
2: oh
1: amazing was food a big deal at home did you have these big family meals was it important
0: so my father died when i was 10 and, and you got to remember this was the 70s and so in america that was the beginning of the tv dinner uh the crock pot the you know so i my mother would not like that i'm saying this but i can't tell you that like we had these big family gatherings it was um it was more of a she was a single mom It was more about convenience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So how did that interest from initially that 13-year-old Steve Palmer then manifest into you wanting to go properly into this industry?
0: I've been very fortunate, and I say this a lot. I've had some amazing mentors. And at a fairly young age, at a restaurant called Magnolia's in Charleston in 1990, my first mentor appeared and he said, you know, Steve, people don't go out to eat. If that's all they were going out for, they would save the money. They go out to have an experience and we're here to create that experience for them. And that was, you know, you got to remember the context. There was no food network, the word foodies hadn't been invented. We had no social media. So restaurants were in, in the States were really still seen as sort of, eh, it's kind of what you do if you don't know what you're gonna do. And um, that moment, I immediately fell in love with the business.
1: Do you still own that restaurant now?
0: No, I, I was an employee.
1: Okay. Um, and so how long have you worked in the industry?
0: Um, wow. Um, let's see, 31 years.
1: Wow. That is, that is an age. That is an age when a lot has changed as well, especially yes. t- with technology. Um, and what inspired you to, to stay in the sector?
0: So I'm a people pleaser by na- by nature. And so, you know, when, when I had that sort of light bulb moment, I just love making people happy. And I love, you know, I always say we get this intimate front row into people's lives, their first dates, their engagement dinners, their divorce parties, their, <laughs> you know, like the friends getting together. It's this beautiful theater where you get to be a part of memories. And I I still run into people who I waited on 25 years ago that'll say, oh my God, we had the best, you know. And so you are it's this really intimate part of somebody else's life. And I i never saw serving as a secondary job or as a subservient job. I, I always thought it was an honorable job to be able to serve other people.
1: Well, that's a great attitude. Still do, still do. Yeah, I've seen a picture of you kind of, you know, uh, very hands-on in the restaurants as well. Yes. I like that. And and how have you managed through covid? I, I I can imagine it's been quite tough.
0: You know, Sasha, it's been it's it's hard to describe. You know, we February we were tracking ahead of last year and everything seemed to be fine and literally within about 14 days we we were completely shut down and so um you know to go through that to lay off the amount of people we laid off to try and manage them uh help them with their fears with everybody's afraid you know we we sort of immediately set up a, a company call every friday where all all the employees could call in and i would just talk about whether it was the unemployment benefits or anything that was going on to try and just to let them know we were there for them. You know, reopening was tough. Uh, there was, a, there, at that period in May, there was a lot of civil unrest, in, in, and, and there was a lot of other things, sadly, besides COVID going on, some really tragic things. And so that it's just, it's felt like our industry has just gotten one punch to the stomach after the next, you know, we're, our restaurants are in the Southeast. And so we fared a little bit better than the, than the more populated cities. And so the summer, you know, we, we're doing okay, but it's, we've had to switch to, to go, we've, we've had to do a lot of things that aren't sustainable business models when you do And and you know, I mean, they're just. It's good I mean doing delivery is good but it's certainly not going to make up the difference. So it's been a lot of adapting a lot of pivoting a lot of trying things that don't work but hospitality people were resilient you know we get faced with difficult circumstances even on the best of nights right 200 people coming to eat and uh, the kitchen is not keeping up or you know whatever but um, we're pretty resilient.
1: No, that's good to hear. And can I ask you a bit about what it's like in a restaurant kitchen? You know, whenever you see these programs where, you know, you have chefs under high stress and, you know, as you talked about all the orders coming in, what are your memories? Because I imagine I don't think you do that anymore, but I'm sure it's ingrained in your memory. What is it like a typical day in a restaurant kitchen?
0: There's an adrenaline rush that comes with it, right? That I think most of us in hospitality thrive on which I'm sure Freud would have a lot to say about that, but there, it's an enormous amount of pressure, um, you know, coming up in the industry um, and it's much better now, but there was a lot of yelling and screaming. The chefs were these sort of tyrants. Um, I've had plates thrown at me, you know, I mean, all of the all of the nightmares that people hear, that's changed a lot as our industry has become more professional. And we know in our company that from a culture point of view, that our employees in order for our guests to have a hospitable experience that our employees have to first have a hospitable experience but and so we've really evolved as an industry but yeah in the beginning and, and on any night it's a lot of pressure we thrive in it to some degree uh, those of us that are successful but it's it's like no other industry i've ever seen
1: and what do you think makes people want to put up with that level of pressure on a continuous basis?
0: <laughs> Mental illness? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, listen, I think most rest, hospitality people are creative people. Again, that guest satisfaction, when we see people being happy, we thrive on that. There's also an enormous camaraderie in the restaurant business. So it's, it's sort of like you're going to battle with your team every night. And when you get through it, there's this closeness and this sort of sense of bond that I, I, I don't know of another industry that maybe sports, maybe team sports, but you really are in it together. And so, I, I mean, I, the, the people, I knew, the, the closest people in my life are all people that I've, I've worked in restaurants with.
1: Wow. And and so so people feel it's worth that kind of personal sacrifice because it, it is a personal sacrifice. You're not home, you know, well before midnight, any night of the week, I imagine.
0: That's right. You know, I, I always say we work nights, weekends and holidays. We work while everyone else plays. You have to love our business. It's yeah. not an industry for someone that's just getting a paycheck. You really have to love it. It's 12 to 16 hours a day Um, you've got to love it. But those of us that are passionate about it, we wouldn't imagine doing anything else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, let's talk a bit about the the other, you know, the other side of this industry, which hasn't been talked about so much. But, you know, thanks to people like you and other people who are coming forward and talking about, let's call it the dark side of the industry. um, Why do you think addiction and mental health issues are so widespread in this sector?
0: You know, and so I'm in recovery. I've been sober 19 years.
1: Congratulations.
0: Uh, well, thank you. Uh, and I got sober at a time when we weren't talking about mental health in our industry at all.
1: What triggered you to make that decision?
0: You know, Sasha, I was very blessed. I had a owner of a restaurant. I was managing a restaurant, and I came to work one day. And he basically said, you can clean out your office or you can go to rehab, but we're not going to watch you kill yourself anymore. And every fiber in my being wanted to tell him what he could do, you know, and but for whatever reason that day, I chose to get help. And even while I was going through that process, it was scary because I knew I loved hospitality, but no one that I knew was sober in hospitality. So it was sort of like, how do you do this? And I get asked a lot. Do you think the restaurant industry made you an alcoholic? And absolutely not. You know, for the longest time, it, it, there's a lot of access, right? We're around alcohol every night and it was just not something we talked about. And, and thankfully, you know, th- there's been a shift because of the long hours and the stress. We've started to realize that, you know, we, it's funny. We talk about sustainability from a, where we're buying our groceries and how the animals are treated, but we don't talk about human sustainability very much. People like Kat Kinsman at Food and Wine Magazine started Chefs With Issues. Mm. We were through a tragedy where one of our chefs, Ben Murray, committed suicide. We started Ben's Friends, which is a weekly support group for people in the industry that are trying to seek sobriety. We're now in 14 cities and we've got 21 Zoom meetings a week nationwide. Mm. So there's this real watershed moment now about, it, about if we're going to stay in the business, We have to be healthy. And and I I say this a lot. We spend every night taking care of other people. Mm. We're just now learning how to take care of ourselves.
1: It's quite ironic, isn't it? Looking after everyone, but, you know, you're right at the bottom of the list. That's right. Can I ask you, and you don't need to answer this, but how much did you drink on a daily basis before you went to rehab?
0: Oh, sure. Um, I drink every day. I did drugs uh, I I got to the point where I couldn't not drink. So I mean, I a half a gallon of vodka a day, a gallon of vodka a day. I mean, there was never enough. Um, and and
1: how could you work like that? Would, did you drink and then the drugs would put you in a state to work, and then you would drink again?
0: Yes, I mean, not every day. You know, again, it was so accepted to run to the bar and do a shot of whiskey in the middle of the shot as shift that nobody really, I mean, it was, nobody really batted an eye and it was hard. It was, it was hard to work like that. And, and, and I think people around me knew at the end, but again, culturally in our business, we were 20 years ago, we weren't an industry that would have addressed that.
1: Yeah. Is there some part of you though, when you're doing that thinking, this is insane. What am I doing?
0: Yes. It's, it is this, Sasha, it's this endless cycle of broken promises to yourself. I'm not going to do it tonight. I'm going to go home or I'm only going to have one or two and then I'll go home. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that goes on. You know, every person who gets sober will talk about that period at the end where they just had no control. They, they, they didn't trust themselves because they couldn't keep their word. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a vicious cycle.
1: And you mentioned, you know, 19 years, you've been sober. Amazing. How was it when you because you said the industry was very different 20 years ago. So you were probably quite unique in the fact that you you weren't drinking and you weren't doing drugs when still many people around you were way back when?
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was scary. It was lonely, to be honest. Um, You know, I, I got out of rehab and I went right back to managing this restaurant. It was a five-star luxury restaurant very busy a lot of pressure and that sort of group of people it wasn't that they were being unkind they just didn't know what to say again we just weren't talking about addiction or sobriety or mental health I mean those just those were foreign conversations so it was you know the early walk of sobriety was very lonely um you know happily today I think if you make that choice in our industry there's a lot more support, and more importantly, there's a lot more acceptance.
2: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QB. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Forum.com.
1: I can't imagine there were a tougher situation than literally coming out of rehab and putting yourself in a situation where, I mean, you are surrounded by alcohol at all moments of the day.
0: All moments. I'll never forget the first night I came back, a server ran up and handed me a bottle of wine and said, go open this on table 12, which is a very normal. And I had a complete panic attack. I ran out of the restaurant and I just, I went outside and I was, I just was like, I don't know if I can do this. And I had this moment of peace come over me and I thought, you know, well, I haven't been through all that I've been through just to start drinking again. And I just knew I loved hospitality. I I knew that I wanted to find a way to make it work. A lot of people, when they go through that process, do get out of our industry. And hopefully now, through groups like Ben's friends, that conversation is starting to change.
1: No, absolutely. And why do you think it has been so taboo until more recently to talk about what's really going on in restaurant kitchens? I was reading Gordon Ramsay called it the food industry's dirty little secret what has held people back?
0: Well, I think peer pressure, right? I mean, there's this sort of, historically, it's not anymore. There's been this sort of, there was this sort of bravado in the kitchen, like, you know, work hard, play hard, come to work. You never, never, never ask for help. And um, again, thankfully that's changed, but for so long, it was just, we just didn't, you just, you, it was seen as a weakness, honestly. If you needed help, then you, you know, there was something wrong.
1: It sounds very macho, that culture.
0: It, it was very macho and very destructive um, and 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 not, uh, just very unhealthy.
1: Do you think there are specific people who are responsible for reinforcing that culture of putting value on kind of self-abuse and workaholism? Are there any specific people or it's just rampant across the industry I think
0: it was I think it was just rampant it was just accepted uh there's no one particular that sticks out but it was just it was just expected
1: Mm. And, and do you think situations for example like Anthony Bourdain's suicide a couple of years ago made a few more people stop and say oh my god we really need to start changing things
0: yes and and to your that point we had started ben's friends the year before he killed himself and we had we were in three cities we went from three to about 12 cities right after his suicide so i think it was really a moment so many chefs idolized him and so many people i mean on the outside look the guy wrote a book and now he's being paid millions of dollars a year to fly all over the world and eat most of us would look at his life and go what an amazing life! Who yeah. wouldn't want that job?
1: But but that isn't that also the example of uh, your friend Ben, for whom you set up Ben's friends. I mean, I remember reading that you said you didn't think anything was going on with him. From the outside, everything looks fine.
0: Oh, absolutely, Sasha. I mean, there were, the words "depressed" and Ben—I would have never put those words together. And and I think that it's it's and that was really honestly why I wanted to start Ben's friends. Because I kept asking the question, like, what is it about our culture that we can't ask for help or that we won't ask for help? Why? Why wouldn't Ben? We opened right before he killed himself. We opened this restaurant together and there were three chefs that were sober working in the restaurant. He could have asked any of them. Hey, how are you doing that? Can you help me? And, And so that was really the question that I. Kept, that kind of haunted me was why didn't he just ask for help
1: yeah and so t- tell me a bit more about Ben's friends you've touched on it while we've been talking but I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about it because it's such a fabulous initiative
0: well thank you it, it so right after Ben killed himself I went to Mickey Bax who's my co-founder he's another sober person in the restaurant business in Charleston and I just said we, we have to do something and um, we said, well, let's just start a meeting. And so we met in Charleston. Um, we got the local food critic to write a little article saying, "Hey, this is this is going to happen." Yeah. And it was it really was Anthony Bourdain's suicide. After that, like the press, just the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, like everybody started emailing us, "Hey, what is this Ben's Friends thing?" And then what would happen is an article would get written, and then a chef in Seattle would go, "Well." I'm sober, I'd love to start one of these chapters. And then, and it just kind of snowballed. And and, I mean, there are hundreds of people um, now in our organization. And what's been the really beautiful surprise is during COVID, so as I mentioned, we have 21 Zoom meetings a week. People are finding Ben's friends virtually who have never been to a physical Ben's friends meeting.
1: And is that maybe more comfortable for them as well, potentially? I think
0: so. And and they're getting sober. I mean, they're coming to us saying, I have one day of sobriety, and now now it's I have 120 days of sobriety. And you know, for me when I was drinking, a pandemic would have been an excuse to stay in the bottom of a bottle. Yeah. And and what's so inspiring are these people are choosing this moment when there's so much uncertainty to really look at themselves honestly and say i need help and it's it is the most inspiring thing i've ever seen and it is it is my life's most important work there's no question and just the bond that's being created virtually i lead the national zoom meeting on sundays and uh, a couple sundays ago in an Airstream trailer, <laughs> the women from Portland, Ben's friends and the women from Seattle Ben's friends who had never met because of Zoom decided to all go camping together. And they were all <laughs> dialing in on, on their laptop in an Airstream. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just what what's happened is the restaurant business was already a community. Mm. Ben's friends is this community within that community. And that the strength of it is, I mean, honestly, Mickey and I, I don't think we ever thought we would, you know, we thought we were going to start a little group in Charleston and it would be a great thing. It's a nationwide movement now. It is really the most important work I'll ever do.
1: Wow. And and I think also by doing what you did, I think you took a lot of the stigma out of it because you're just putting it out there for people to join.
0: That's right. And that that's, You know, we we made a decision to be very public, the traditional 12-step groups are not, and and we totally respect that. And most of us found our sobriety in the traditional 12-step groups. I really, Mickey and I really felt like because the stigma was so strong, we needed to be our own organization. And, you know, what's happened is, you know, then now there's a, a chef in Portland who's a James Beard winning chef who's very, you know, very in the public eye, he's on Top Chef. And now he's saying, well, hey, I'm, I'm also chairing a Ben's friends meeting. So other chefs are seeing this and they're going, wow, part of not just part of their their mental health aspect is getting sober. Part of their success story is the fact that they're they got sober and, and that's enabled them to even be more successful. Mm-hmm. So I think moments like that are really important in removing the stigma.
1: Absolutely, and what do you say at these Zoom meetings? You said there are twenty-one a week. What happens during these Zoom meetings? So, so
0: we, we generally have a topic, you know, um, and it's kind of an open discussion. Um, a topic, you know, might be fear one day, and it's how are you dealing with being afraid of the unknown. Some days it's 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 just as gritty and simple as how are you not drinking today? And so it it, it provides an opportunity, a safe space. Mm -hmm. for people to share where they are. There's no judgment because the truth is somebody at one day of sobriety, there's probably 20 people on the zoom call that have been there. Mm -hmm. So, so they can relate. And I think that's the strength of the Ben's friends community is not only do we have that common bond that we all work in restaurants but we're all trying to get sober in restaurants and the, that bond. So it creates a safe space for people to talk.
1: Mm, absolutely. And and you you mentioned women and camping there. You know, you hear a lot about male chefs talking about these issues within restaurant kitchens. I haven't heard that much about women's experiences. You know, is that because there aren't as many female chefs, I don't know, or, or does it happen to the same extent for women?
0: I think it's more that they're, there aren't as many female chefs. That's changing, mm-hmm. thankfully, because we need women in the kitchen. Kitchens, ev- I don't know an evolved chef in the, in the industry that won't say that a kitchen is better when there are women cooking in it. It's just, it's a fact. We have a lot of women in Ben's Friends. Um, they, they, I guess I would say they probably, just speaking of the group that's in Ben's Friends, they don't have as much of the public profile as some of the men. But, you know, I think that's more a statement of the industry and less a statement about addiction, because I don't, I don't, addiction doesn't discriminate, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: that's for sure. I agree. Um, and I don't know, Steve, if you have kids, um, and if, if they said, hey, I really want to work in this, in this industry, what, what you would say?
0: So I got married last year, uh, and I have, a ste- I have a stepdaughter, she's 10, and she's so feisty. Um, And I'll joke with her, like, you know, someday, honey, you're going to have to run the company. I don't want to run the company. But yet when we go into our restaurants to eat, she's in the kitchen talking to the chefs. So, you know, the thing I would say to any child is do what you love. If this industry isn't what you love, then don't do it because it's just not a it's only a place for people that love it. but. For the most part, I would try to talk her out of it (laughs) and say, go to college, do something else. Uh, You you know, you'll be home at night. You'll be home on the weekends. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) And just finally, I read that you have done, um, you've implemented a few measures, for example, like doing away with the shift drink to, you know, to help people, you know, not go down that road. Are there... um, other measures that you and restaurant owners can can put in place to to improve the situation in in restaurants and in this sector.
0: Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you asked that. So so we, you know, when I started my company ten years ago, I was already sober, and I, I never wanted to project my sobriety on restaurants. You know, I don't think alcohol is bad. We sell it every night. It was just bad for me you know, it's not a moral crusade. You know, I have a disease. I have a genetic things in my genes. But I started to really think about how are we going to have healthier, more well-balanced employees? And the first thing I thought was, well, let's not have them all hanging out after work, getting drunk together. If they want to do that somewhere else, that's fine. But let's not promote that message. And I was really surprised. Um, I'm very collaborative in nature, so whenever we make a decision for our restaurants, I include our GMs and our chefs. Mm. Everybody, when I said, "How do you all feel about doing away with the shift drink?" Everybody said, "Absolutely."
1: Really? Do you think they felt pressurized to go for that shift drink?
0: I do. I do, and I and I think by removing that, we kind of made a statement to our employees: not again. No judgment, not drinking is bad, but like we're not going to promote you possibly damaging yourself. Right. I mean, because it's never one drink for those of us that suffer. And, you know, so we did that. We we pay for anyone to get mental health counseling. So anybody in the company that wants to go to a therapist will pay for it. No questions asked. We also have an open dialogue about mental health and and we bring resources into the company. We talk very openly about Ben's friends, about where we are. And I think that it, it, my hope is that when you come to work for the Indigo road, you feel a sense of like, wow, these, this company really cares about me. I mean, the the best compliment I ever get. And I, it happened to me two nights ago and, and it literally brings me to tears. Every time as somebody came up and said, this is the best restaurant I've ever worked in. Thank Mm -hmm. you. And it's a validation of the way they feel and the way they feel is cared for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think you're going to achieve that by pouring them a tequila shot every night. I mean, it's just not the same. Um, And so thankfully we've really, I, I mean, listen, we still have plenty of people that are suffering from addiction, working in a restaurant. So I'm not trying to be naive. But we've at least made a statement that that we don't want to be a part of that, and what we do want to be a part of is help getting you help when you need it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. On that really nice note, we're going to leave it there, Steve. But thank you so much for taking the time and really what amazing work you're doing i think it's brilliant that you started ben's friends and you know you're coming full circle you you know putting all your experiences to to such great use and i'm sure you're helping so many people all the time so yeah and it's an amazing amazing thing to do
0: thank you so much sasha i appreciate the conversation
1: yeah same here lovely to chat thanks steve
2: That was Sasha Kadri in conversation with Steve Palmer. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. Remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. We'll be back next week. Till then, stay safe and thank you for listening.